Jewish audio on Kabbalah.org. Rambam Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Mitame, Mishka, Bomoshav, defilement through items which one usually sits on or lays on or sits on. And today with Mazel and Brocha, we will complete this section. Pedic Shlosh Asar, the rather short chapter 13. Again, if you're just joining us and you're not in the flow of things, a reminder, it was very difficult, especially in later times, in the second base Amigdash era, to maintain ritual purity when so many people around the people around you did not. Because it's so easy, so simple, so commonplace to defile something. Simply touching it defiles. Lifting it, throwing it, stepping on it. These are the laws that have to do with Zov Zobah, Nida and Yeledis, with the various forms of impurity that we talked about. So therefore there had to be very, very strong focus and concentration to maintain ritual purity. And as time went on, the Jewish people morphed into two groups. Those who did, who were called Chaver or Chavenim, licensed, knowledgeable practitioners of purity and impurity. And those who didn't, the everyday folk, who were called Amei Ha'oretz, the people who devoted themselves to earth matters rather than matters of the spirit. So now, there is so much detail in the oral law as to what is or what isn't. And here the Rambam goes on to say, Aleph in one, what if there is a Kohen? What's the deal with a Kohen? A Kohen has to have special ritual purity because he eats Kohen food called Tuma, Shakir, Caleb, Legazu. So the Kohen took his tools, his utensils, whatever it is he used to consume Tuma or whatever he used to process, his own grape pressing, he took all of his tools, and he made sure they're pure. And he set them aside for the next season. So the Kohen, I believe this means, took his utensils in his grape pressing environment and put them away. Now the question is, next season comes, and he didn't have a watchman there for 24 hours a day. Can we safely assume that nobody touched the Kohen's tools, the Kohen's utensils? Says the Rambam from the oral law, Yes, we can safely assume that the Kohen put them away in a state of purity, that they're still in a state of purity. Why? Because everyday people will not even think of touching the utensils of this Kohen in his own grape pressing area, in his own processing area. Because everyone knows that the Kohen eats a special level of purity. The Kohen eats Truma. So there's a common respect. And being that this is identified as something belonging to the Kohen, people will respect the purity of it. That's the law. The same law. If it happens to a regular non-Kohen Jew, can his pure utensils be considered as having maintained purity even though they were not watched? The answer is no. Until he says, It was in my heart. I focused. I paid attention to guard any people who are not knowledgeable. Who will enter into my work area. Into the wine press area, they shouldn't touch any of the machinery, any of the utensils, and so on and so forth. So the Kohen, I'm sorry, the guy has to make a special declaration that I was vigilant, I was careful. But if he doesn't make that declaration, we are going to assume that everything became defiled. Based to what does somebody do in general if somebody wants to process wine in a state of purity? What is he going to hire only Torah scholars who know the ins and outs of purity? Well, probably. But there's also another way. If somebody wants to produce his wine crop and maintain ritual purity, he wants to use, um, I guess a more, this is my, these are my words, a more affordable group of employees, or getting away from my words, he wants to use non-licensed employees, licensed in purity and impurity, non-chaber employees. What does he do? A non-chaber is assumed impure. He can't have him work on his wine, because the wine, the grapes, emit liquid, and liquid makes things susceptible for impurity. So if somebody is impure and working on grapes with a constant flow of liquid, automatically the grapes are impure. So Houston, we got a problem. What do you do? He says, how is not There is a solution. He can take all the harvesters of grapes and have them do a group trip to the mikvah. He immerses them all in the mikvah. There was no shortage of mikvahs. Wherever you went, there was a mikvah. He immerses them in the mikvah and makes sure, as we learn, they do it right, because you need to learn the laws of chatzitza, what is considered a separation, what is considered something that gets in the way of the connection of the body to the mikvah. So he does all of that, and then, as he says later, he waits till the sun sets, and voila, we're ready to go. And so also, and if they were producing oil, oil is also a liquid. Liquids prepare foods to become impure. Matbil es habadodim. He can take the oil producers and have them immerse in the mikvah. 
Now he says it's not simple, where he drops them off and says, Here, guys, go to the mikvah. He has to supervise these employees. He has to make sure that they immerse in his presence because he is a knowledgeable person in the laws of purity and impurity. He knows what immersion is all about in general. Whenever anybody needs to immerse in a mikvah by strict application of halacha, such as a woman after her monthly menstrual cycle, there has to be a mikvah woman who's there to make sure that she immerses properly and that she doesn't have <coughs> any chatzitzah so that all her hair goes under the water and so on and so forth. So here, this employer scholar has to make sure that these employees who don't know much about mikvah, that they do it properly. They're not familiar with Hilchais, the laws of tefillah, immersion, and what separates the human skin from the mikvah, whether it's a scab or a bandage or what have you. There are many situations, and we will learn, I believe the last item the Rambam has in his collection of laws in purity and impurity is mikvah. So we will learn the laws of mikvah that's upcoming. Now, what if these workers were immersed in the mikvah and everything is good? And then in the process, they left the wine press area. They went behind the fence to do what people do in private. To use what we call in Canada the washroom. Except they didn't have washrooms back then, they had trees. And then they returned. Can we assume that whatever they did in private did not make them ritually defiled? The answer is that's fine. They can still maintain their ritual purity. As long as they don't go a large distance. But if they went a distance away, we're not talking about privacy as the commentaries here. Say we're talking about distance. Then the distance creates a problem because at such a distance they feel free to do whatever they want to do. As long as it's far away where you can't see it, it's out of eye vision. Because of distance. We're not talking about because of a barrier. Obviously when people need privacy, there has to be a barrier. We're talking about they go so far away that it's past the distance that the human eye could see. If they went that distance, we must assume that they have regained their state of impurity. Until he has them immersed a second time. And he has to wait until the sun sets, which is always the condition of this type of immersion. Immerse, wait till sunset. Gimel, how about the wine press people, and the other press people, what if there is a source of impurity before them? They are trustworthy. They say, we know that this was a source of impurity. We want you to be sure we didn't touch it. So also, in their various interpretations, if the children say, because the children must be assumed as impure because they're all over the place, if the children say, we didn't touch any of the food, we didn't touch the wine or the grapes or the olives. When somebody is in charge of purifying the olive press workers, on the base of what he did is he made sure they all went to the mikvah. He made sure the sun set. He made sure they're all pure. He then took them into their work environment, but no one and he locked it. Now I think that would present other problems, such as fire problems and so on. But the Rambam is talking about health problems, about spiritual problems. Can that work? Why does he lock it? He locks it to make sure that they stay in their environment. They don't leave the environment because then he's going to have to cause them to immerse again. The problem is, if he ascertains later that there were impure items in the work environment that were made impure because somebody put pressure on them, and these are the laws we learned earlier, that by sitting or standing or leaning or putting pressure on something, it makes it impure. So if, you know, it's very nice that he closed the door and make sure they don't leave, but the problem is inside. We must assume that the whole work area is now impure. We're concerned that they touched any of the impure utensils. Even if, when he was watching them, with eyeball supervision, he saw that they were meticulously cautious not to touch those items that were in a state of impurity. The fact of the matter is, he's not watching them now. We must assume that that entire area is impure. Because all it takes, as we learned in great detail over the last 12, 13 chapters, all it takes is for them to move something slightly. Movement itself causes impurity. And they, being not knowledgeable, will imagine that moving, let's say you take a golf club, and the golf club is pure, with the golf club you move something. That's enough to convey impurity, even though you're moving it through something. Just causing movement. Because a non-knowledgeable person will simply not be fluent in the laws of purity and impurity. Okay. Uh, hey, five. What if his donkeys? Or his porters are carrying holy items, meaning pure items. And they are passing by before him. Even though they're ahead of him more than a kilometer, they still maintain ritual purity. Because we must assume that they think he's watching. Any minute he'll come. They're afraid to touch anything. We're talking about porters who are carrying other things and there were ritually pure objects around them. And they'll say, He's going to come now. He's right behind us. He'll be coming around the mountain when he comes. But if he told them, You go out. 
around, so I'll catch up with you. That gives them too much leeway. Being that they became concealed from his vision, from his eyesight. We must assume that these people, who certainly are not licensed and knowledgeable to really maintain ritual purity, got into some kind of trouble with impurity. Vov 6. Now we come to a rather large paragraph, very interesting. Maintaining ritual purity requires focus. It requires concentration, effort. It doesn't happen by itself. Chaber, a person who is trustworthy to maintain ritual purity because he knows his stuff. Sheyelobush he's wearing a shirt. Vyotu Betalus, and he's also wearing a, what we would call a coat. Umahalach, and he's traveling. Vyomar, and he said, Believe me, in my heart, my main focus was that I keep an eye on my shirt. It should not become impure. And I really focused, because it's not easy to protect one's garments from ritual impurity. When it comes to the outer coat, I didn't always 100% focus, although I tried my best. We have to assume that that which he focused on the shirt maintains ritual purity. But the coat did not. Because unless you have 100% focus, you can put your coat down for a second and someone can move it. Boom. It's no longer pure. All it takes is for a non-knowledgeable person to touch it and it becomes impure. Next case. What if a person has a basket of figs or dates or blocks of them on his shoulder? He's carrying a basket of figs or dates. And there's also, a, they used to have like small rakes or pitchforks with which they used to separate this food and break it up into sections because it would all stick together. So they had this little tool called the magrepa. And this magrepa, this mini pitchfork was in the basket. And he said, listen, believe me, my main focus in my heart, to guard the basket. I also kept in mind to guard this mini pitchfork from a major source of impurity, but not from a minor source of impurity, which would only make it impure, but it would not allow it to make the basket impure because there, there is a primary level of impurity, a derivative and so on, as we will learn. The basket maintains ritual purity because that was his main focus. And the mini pitchfork becomes impure because it was not his main focus. And any Kohen food in this basket now became unfit to be consumed by a Kohen. Why? Because of this tool. Which, although it may have only contracted a more minor form of impurity, but even a minor form of impurity conveys impurity to food, as we learned, and as we will learn. There's a whole section of food. Purity and impurity as it relates to food and drink. Upcoming. Next scenario, he utilized something in a barrel in the state of ritual purity, but he assumed that it was regular everyday food, yet he maintained ritual purity. He then ascertained that what was in that barrel it was not regular food, but it was in fact Kohen food, which requires a greater caution, even though the fact is he maintained ritual purity, so it's pure. Still, because it's Kohen food, it requires a higher level of meticulousness. It is forbidden for the Kohen to eat. What is an example of what is permitted with non-Kohen food and what is forbidden with Kohen food? So he says, but perhaps... A person who immersed in the mikvah touched that food before the sunset. We learned earlier that you immerse in the mikvah and then you have to wait until the sun sets. Somebody immersed in the mikvah and the sun did not set. It disqualifies things in the trumah world. But in the everyday food world, it maintains purity because there's a more of a lenient approach. You can't compare the meticulousness of one who guards trumah from impurity to one who guards everyday food from impurity. And if he said, believe me, in my heart of hearts, I want to guard it from even something that will disqualify it. Then it can be eaten as well. Next similar situation, and many of these situations are described in the tract in Chagiga, which has a whole section dealing with laws of purity and impurity around page 20 in Chagiga. That's the source of many of these laws. What if somebody has Shabbos garments or Shabbos utensils? Shabbos, a person, maintains a higher form of ritual purity. He mixed up his Sabbath garments, his Sabbath clothes, or his Shabbos utensils, with weekday clothes, or the washer, and he put on the weekday clothes. 
I'm sorry. He put on the Shabbos clothes, thinking that we could take clothes. Nitmu, being that he's not cognizant, he's not aware that they are Shabbos clothes, they become defiled. Why? He's been guarding them. Because people didn't, would not apply the same meticulous caution to weekday garments as they do to Sabbath garments. In fact, Misa, there's a Gemara. The same Gemara brings down a story. Of two women, two women who were both knowledgeable in the mechanisms and systems of impurity and purity. Chaveres, they were married to scholars, so they themselves were well trained. Where their own garments became exchanged, they mixed up their garments in the bathhouse. They were both in the bathhouse at the same time, and their garments got mixed up. So, woman A is now wearing woman's B, woman B's garments. Woman B is now wearing woman's A garments. And this situation came before the scholars. Because there is a question. What's the big deal? They're both meticulously observant of ritual law. What's the difference? Whose garments they're wearing? The Timu and our sages ruled that being that they're not wearing their own garments, that meticulousness does not apply. Furthermore, it's not a matter only of exchanging garments. Even if her shawl, one woman's shawl dropped, and she said to her friend who was meticulous as well, Tanali, can you hand it to me? When a son of she handed it to her neat mace, it also becomes impure. Why? There's no reason for it to be impure, because we're concerned that the next time a regular person will give it to her is not meticulous in the laws. Or perhaps the knowledgeable one will not guard it as much as she would guard her own. Because the fact of the matter is, a person is not as meticulous with ritual purity and impurity laws with somebody else's objects as they are with their own objects. Unless... She proclaimed, that she's relying. If somebody proclaims and says, hey, I'm relying on you, then there is a different application of meticulousness. Now, I must say, speaking for myself, it's very difficult for us to really put ourselves in, in that world because we're not in that world because these laws are all foreign to us. But that's the world people lived in. They had to maintain ritual purity. And it was not a simple task. Zion, seven out of eight. Chaver what if a person who did maintain ritual purity and impurity properly, he passed away, and he left items which were clearly designated as pure. Can we trust that they're pure even though he's no longer with the living? Yes, we can assume that pure is pure. Because there's no reason for anybody to take pure and make it impure. People know. However, if he had utensils or garments or what have you, we have to assume that they are impure. Why? They are the garments or the utensils of the scholar. And the scholar maintained ritual purity. And you just said that his ritually pure stuff is pure. Why can't his garments or utensils be pure? Because I will say there are too many possibilities. When you have food that's pure, it's pure. To the pure, it's not pure. When you have garments or utensils, there's a lot of possibilities. It's possible that something happened and they were defiled. And being... A scholar who is meticulously observant with these laws, surely first opportunity, he's alayim, he sprinkled the mixture of red heifer, ashes, bashlishi on the third day, planning to do so on the seventh day, but he's alayim, but never got to it because he died. That is a possibility. How would we know? What is he going to say? I did the third, I didn't do the seventh. He didn't think he was going to die. It wasn't a plan dying. Hey, another possibility, Shema, he's alayim, bashri, maybe he even sprinkled the application on day seven. So what's the problem now? Because we learned that following that, there has to be an immersion in a mikvah. But he knew that the next day he was going to immerse him in a mikvah and never told anybody. Maybe he didn't do anything to them. So therefore, because there's such a simple solution, just do it again. Therefore, our sages say, let's not assume that anything is pure other than food, which is marked pure. Closing paragraph of this chapter, closing paragraph of these laws, and in most publications, the laws of purity and impurity are divided into book one and book two. This will be the conclusion of book one, and in the next year, in the next class, we're going to go into book two. If somebody was approached by one individual, we know in Torah, two individuals are witnesses, one individual can only inform and he told him, hey, Mr. Nitmutar Secha, I'm here to tell you that that which you think is pure is not really pure. It became defiled. I saw your stuff become defiled. And the person who's being told that his stuff became defiled is not saying anything. He's not objecting. He's not disagreeing. Then the person who makes that statement, even though he's only one, is trustworthy. And this object or these objects are impure. However, if he contradicted, he says, what are you talking about? Of course not. Objected. And he said, no, sir, it's not impure. Then his pure items maintain their status of pure. The only thing that can undo that is when two witnesses come. Because two witnesses can create reality in Torah law. Two witnesses come and say, your food, your tools, your garments became impure. And he says they didn't. They say they did. Their testimony overpowers his statement. What if somebody was assisting him in the production of whatever he was doing with pure food or with sacrifices? At the time, he didn't say anything. A while later, he encounters him. He meets him in Starbucks. You don't think they had Starbucks back then? They did. It's a different name. The Yom Aaron said, like to him, when he met him, by the way, my friend, I want to let you know that Tarish or Sisi remember way back when when I worked with you on pure objects? Nikmu, I'm here to tell you. You know, now it's February. I'm here to tell you, back in November, they became defiled. 
or sacrifices that I was helping you with, Nisbagul, they became unfit. We learned extensively the laws of Igul, something becoming ritually unfit due to thoughts that shouldn't have been had or what have you. Hare Zenema, this person has to be believed. Because we have to assume that this is the first opportunity you had to tell him something that was just realized or that was realized later. Ah, but if he had encountered him earlier, he didn't say nothing. I'm just kidding. He didn't say anything. And then afterwards, he met him a second time. The Omar lady said to him, you know, back then, I, I never told Then he has no credibility. He should have told him the first time. He must be trying to create problems. His sacrifices maintain the assumption that they're all kosher. The Torah of his pure objects maintain the assumption that they're all pure. That's the end of this chapter, the end of this section. And the Rambam concludes, as he always does, blessed be the compassionate God, the Sayayon who helped. And again, the Rambam's task is amazing, mind-boggling for us to understand how he accomplished so much with all of his responsibilities. So the Rambam always said, Baruch Hashem, end of Hilchais Mitame, Mishkav Omosha, Mafuto. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchais Sha'ar Aves Hatuma, or Hatumais, the laws of the balance of the major sources of impurity, and essentially we are working our way through Book 10 of the 14 books of Mishnah Torah. Book 10 is known as Sefer Torah, the Book of Purity. We've already covered four out of the eight laws in the first part of Book 10, and they were the laws of impurity due to human corpse, the laws of the red heifer, the laws of impurity due to leprosy, and the laws of impurity conveyed upon cots and chairs and saddles and so on. And now, moving to Part 2 of Book 10, we now begin with the laws of the balance of the primary sources of impurity over and above the ones I just enumerated. Yesh Bechlovon, in the general context of this section, there are Shalosh Mitzvahs Aseh. When we talk about Sha'ar Oves Hatumah, which is the first part of book, of part two, which we're going to go into, these have three mitzvahs. One is Din, the law, Tumas, of the impurity brought about by Nevela, by an animal carcass. During the time that base Hamigdash purity was maintained, an animal carcass conveyed impurity. Beis is Din Tumas Sheretz, the laws of impurity of the carcass of a crawling animal, such as a rodent-type animal. Gimel, part three, is Din, the law, Tumas, of the impurity, Shechvazera, of human semen. And then, as a P.S., Valvedezora, that also any form of idol worship, idolatry, Mitamla, brings about defilement, Kasheretz, like a rodent, like a crawling animal. Mitumoso, and its impurity is not biblical, but Midibre Seifrim, out of rabbinic law, obey your mitzvah the explanations of these laws, in the upcoming chapters, and in this section of Shara Vosatuma, we have something like 20 chapters. So it's a pretty significant section here in the laws of purity and impurity. Peter Christian, chapter 1, the Rambam, as always, builds a building and gives us the foundation. He says, Hanevela, animal carcass, a carcass of an animal, of is a primary, or father, primary source, of the primary impurities, which means it is a serious source of impurity. And during the time that Beis Hamigdash, purity was maintained, people had to be cautious not to be exposed to the carcass of an animal. Kazayas, even the volume of an olive, mipsora of its flesh, mitame, defiles, odom, both man, vikalem, and utensils, bimaga, by touching them, because it is a primary source of impurity, and that's what primary sources of impurity do. They defile both man and utensils. Uchlicheres, and earthenware vessels, as we've learned many times, ba'abir, only if it is inserted in their airspace within it. Mitame, odom, bimasa, and when this carcass is carried, even if it's carried in such a way that it's not touched, you can carry it in a box or in a container. Not only does it defile the person, it also defiles the garments the person is wearing. Like the saddle of the one who is a Zov, the section we learned earlier. Kate now the Rambam spells it out. If a person touched an animal carcass, that person becomes defiled. The animal carcass is an Av Hatuma, is a primary source of impurity. And the person who was touched by the animal carcass, he becomes Rishain Latuma, a first level of Tuma, which means a derivative of impurity. And therefore, being that this person is only a derivative, if he then touched vessels, 
utensils, a field of bishas, magoy, and a even while he's still touching the corpse. He has one hand on the corpse and one hand on a container. He cannot convey the impurity to a utensil. Because that's the definition of a derivative of a rishon, the tumma. It can only convey as we will learn and as we have learned. To food and drink, it can't convey to utensils and others. So also any utensils or garments connected to this person maintain ritual purity. Why? Remember, the carcass of the animal is the av, hatuma is the primary source. The person who was touched by the carcass becomes the derivative, the rishay. There's just so much the derivative can convey. The fee, shahu, vlad, because the person is only a derivative. The ain, vlad, mitame, kalim, and as we learned many times, the derivative of impurity does not and cannot convey its impurity to utensils. That is, if the impurity is conveyed through touching. Avil, however, if somebody carries the carcass, carrying in this case is more severe. Mitame brings about defilement to Kalim to utensils, Mishas Nisiyasi, while he's carrying it. So therefore, in simple terms, the fellow who carries it, his garments also become impure. His garments are like utensils. Whereas if he was just touching it, it does not convey the impurity to his garments, as we learned. Shanema, as we learned, anyone who carries the carcass, Yechabe's begotten should wash his garments. Why? Because the garments have also become impure. Why? Because he carried it. These garments of the person who carries it are a derivative of impurity, so they also lose their potency now. They cannot convey impurity to another, not to another person, but not to other garments, or not to earthenware vessels, even at the time of carrying. As we explain in the laws of defilement of cots and chairs and the like, that there are stages, and the stages are reduced. So you have the carcass of the animal is the ab hatuma, is the primary source. The person who touches it is the rishain, the tuma is the derivative. In the case of carrying it, the person takes on a more severe form of impurity, and his garments become a derivative. But they're also limited as to what they can convey, because derivatives are limited as to what they can convey, usually only to food and drink. Now the question is, what is a corpse? What is an animal? Which animal are we talking about? Are we talking about kosher animals? Are we talking about non-kosher animals? Are we talking about domestic animals? Are we talking about wild animals? What are animals where we say the carcass is a source of impurity? What kind of animal? So the Rambam gives clarity. Echad whether it's a domestic animal, mechaya, or a wild animal, makes no difference. An animal is an animal. Whether it's a kosher species animal, or it's a non-kosher species animal, makes no difference. In Mesu, if they're dead, kulon, all of the above, domestic, wild, kosher species, non-kosher species, kulon, besodon, all of their flesh, mitame, conveys impurity, because I, as long as you have a minimum volume of an olive size of flesh. So if you have a dead cow, or a dead goat, or a dead sheep, or a dead elephant, or a dead tiger, or a dead deer, or any animal, or dead, anything, any animal that is dead, conveys impurity. Domestic, wild, kosher species, non-kosher species. However, now comes a fascinating thing. However, if it is a kosher species animal, and it is ritually slaughtered by a shochet, if it's properly slaughtered, not only domestic, but v'chaya also, while also non-domestic, like a deer, where the deer and the antelope play, the act of ritual slaughter makes them pure, which is why meat of a kosher animal that's kosher slaughtered is pure. It's dead. But the fact that the shochet slaughtered it ritually properly makes it pure. It does not allow it to become impure, even though it's as dead as the next animal. Fantastic law. Furthermore, even if somebody did what he shouldn't have done, he took a non-sacrifice animal, a regular animal, took it into the temple courtyard, and made like it's a sacrifice. This is disqualified. You can't do that. But the animal does not become a carcass because it was ritually slaughtered. It maintains purity. You can't eat it, but it doesn't defile. Or because someone takes a sacrifice and slaughters it outside the temple area. Forbidden. But still, the fact that it was ritually slaughtered prevents it from becoming a source of impurity. They retain ritual purity. Again, you can't eat them. But they also don't defile you. However, on the other hand, if something went wrong in the slaughtering, in the kosher slaughtering process, where something is not kosher, Houston, we got a problem in this procedure. This is a typical nebela, meaning it's like an animal that died on its own. Why? Because the ritual slaughter didn't go well. And when somebody carries this carcass, they become defiled. As we explained in the laws of slaughtering, that a messed up slaughtering causes a nebela. A nebela is a source of impurity. So now we have the basic rules. This applies to domestic and non-domestic, kosher species, non-kosher species. Unless it was kosher, slaughtered without a problem. Then it is not a source of impurity because it's kosher meat. Now he says, what if we have an impure species animal, a non-kosher species, domestic or wild, and you hire a shokhat, you say, do me a favor, slaughter this animal because I don't want it to be a source of defilement. 
doesn't help. Ritual slaughter doesn't help by non-kosher species animals. And therefore, when it comes to a non-kosher species animal, whether one slaughters it, or one kills it, or one just cuts its throat, or one chokes it, or it just died naturally, it's any way you want to smell it, it's an avela, it's a dead carcass. So that having a shochet, slaughter, a non-kosher species animal doesn't help. It doesn't prevent it from becoming a source of impurity. Now we learned earlier that we need a minimum volume of an olive's worth. All forms of carcasses combine to make that minimum. Whether it's a kosher species, non-kosher species, a olive's worth is an olive's worth, it can combine. What about marrow of the bone? Bone marrow, you know, sometimes you have a, a piece of meat and you suck out the marrow. Marrow is uh, delicious. Bone marrow is like meat. So therefore, bone marrow is also a source of impurity. Because the bottom line, as we will learn here, is that it has to be meat in order for it to convey impurity. But there are other parts of the animal, and he gives a long list in paragraph 7, that because it's not considered meat, such as bone, they don't convey impurity. Hide, which is why we can use animal skins, because it's not considered meat. However, marrow is meat. What about the blood of an animal that dies on its own, of a carcass? Blood does not convey impurity like a carcass does. But blood being liquid is like an impure liquid. Biblically, it does not convey impurity to humans or utensils. Rabbinically, it does. As we'll study in the right place. Hey, now comes an interesting section. At least I found it interesting. By way of introduction, there is a law in the Torah that if you have a glad kosher animal, kosher slaughtered by the best shochet in the world, there are certain parts of that animal where the fat of that animal is called chelev. Chelev is forbidden fat. Certain fats within the animal are permitted, but much of the fat of the animal called chelev is forbidden. Okay, now the question is whether this forbidden fat is considered also a source of defilement or not. So he says, What if you have the forbidden fat of a kosher species animal? Now, if this animal was ritually slaughtered, that's not even a question. We said earlier that ritually slaughtered removes the animal from the category of carcass, but here it is a fat which would be ordinarily non-kosher, except that this animal shall so died on its own, and the animal is a source of impurity. Is this fat also a source of impurity? That's the question. Toher, it is pure. The fat is not a source of impurity. Shenemar, actually, this is rooted to a verse in the Torah. It says, the fat of an animal that died on its own, or the fat of an animal that died because it was diseased, and any animal that cannot live on its own for 12 months is considered a trefa. That's where the word trefa comes from. The Torah says this fat can be used for any task, but it cannot be eaten, which means it's not a source of impurity. Something whose prohibition is rooted in the idea of nevela, it's a carcass which died on its own, or trefa, or something that could not live. Says the verse, it can be used for anything. It just cannot be eaten. So there's our answer. That the chaylev part does not become a source of impurity. But there's another issue, and this issue is discussed in the Mishnah, in Uktu. We have not even touched upon the whole idea of mukshar lekabel tumah, but it's in Chumash Rashi. And that is, food does not take on impurity. We haven't even touched upon the laws of impurities of food yet. It's coming. Food does not take on impurity unless it was first moistened with certain liquids. Then, later, even if it's dry, it could take on impurity, but it first has to have been exposed to liquid. So now that this fat is not a source of impurity. However, if it was exposed to moisture, like food, it could become defiled, just like food could become defiled. It does not take on the law, like the carcass of an animal which died, which doesn't have this application of impurity of food. Here, because this fat does not have the application of defilement due to carcass, it does have the application of defilement due to food. Now he goes on to say, so what we're kind of establishing, slowly but surely, is that only the meat of the animal is considered a source of impurity. Not the other parts, even the fat. And therefore, when somebody touches of the fat, surrounding the kidney, there is fat surrounding the kidney. Now, once it's separated from the kidney, so kidney is kidney, and it is impure. It is a source of impurity of a carcass. Fat is fat, and it's not impure. But what if it was still not separated, it's still attached to the kidney? This now is defined as impure, as if somebody touched the kidney itself, because the fat being that is still connected to the kidney is just like the kidney. Because it has strands that are connecting it the kidney to the fat. So therefore the fat is an extension of the kidney because of this connection. 
a non-kosher species animal, or a non-domestic, or wild animal like a deer, both pure, or or impure, which is any animal, there's no distinction between the fat of the above list and the meat of the above list. They're all the same. The only distinction between meat and fat is of the kosher species animal. In general, the whole chalif thing has a different application when it comes to non-domestic animals or non-kosher animals. And therefore, the above list of impure animals, wild animals, pure or impure, their meat and their fat are equal pasqual, are the same when it comes to becoming a source of impurity, and they convey impurity to people and utensils like meat. Moving right along, we learned earlier, and many of these laws were already discussed in the laws of forbidden foods, because many of these laws and the laws of forbidden foods have parallels. Hakoi, there is a combination of a domestic and wild animal. There are various interpretations. One interpretation is that it's a hybrid. It comes from the mating of a kosher domesticated animal and a kosher wild animal. So this hybrid offspring, we're not sure if it's domestic or wild, and therefore it has the laws of uncertainty of both. Other interpretations include the fact that it was a particularly wild species that was never quite defined. It was not domestic and it was not wild. It was just undefined. But in any event, this is called a koi. It's fat. Chelba, it's fat. Mitame brings about defilement. Kipsore, like it's meat. Why? Because it might be a wild animal. But the defilement is in doubt because it might be a domestic animal. The fecal, therefore, being that this is an impurity which is rooted in doubt, a serf and all of truma. You don't burn truma food, kohen food, because you only burn kohen food when one is certain of impurity. The kodoshim, what the same applies. You don't burn sacrifice food. I'm sorry. There's no cutting off of the soul. When one went with this state of impurity into the base of or one ate holy foods, because you can't have the cutting off of the soul unless there's a certain violation. And now the Rambam gets to that list of items that are not part of the meat part of the animal, and therefore they don't convey impurity to begin with. The following list do not convey or impart impurity from a carcass. Number one is not some is the bones of the carcass are not meat, so bones do not convey ritual impurity. Or the horns of the animal, or the hoofs of the animal, even the soft part of the hoofs. If this was a living animal and that soft part of the hoof would be cut, it would bleed. Nevertheless, it's still considered a hoof and not meat. This is a biggie. The hide, the animal skin, does not convey impurity. That's why you can use leather. All forms of animals. You can use their hide. How could you use a hide if it conveys impurity? The answer is it doesn't. Even if it's not even yet processed, but still, hide is hide. The ha'alol, is something we learned about earlier. There's a certain amount of meat that gets stuck to the hide. And that's considered more hide than meat. The veins or the sinews. And then they cook these things, and it becomes like a sauce, or the spices. All of these are not considered meat. They do not convey impurity. When does this apply? If they have been severed, they became separated or severed from the carcass. So all of the above list, the bones, and the hoofs, and the horns, and the skin, etc., etc. They do not convey impurity because they have been separated. But if anybody touches any of the above list, while they're still connected with the meat, it does convey impurity. <coughs> Provided that, there is at least the volume of an olive of meat connected to the above. And none of the above, even the aloe, even the meat that was still stuck to the hide, does not connect with the other meat to become a minimum volume of kazayas. This is what I just described. Whether the carcass was consumed by a wild animal. You have a lion or a tiger that attacked this carcass or killed it. And just cleaned it up and left a little aloe, left a little meat connected to the hide. Or or this was cut by a professional with a knife and left a little meat on the hide. And if it's not because I in any event, the aloe, which is the leftover, tiny piece of meat do not combine with the regular meat to make kazayas. However, being kinsay, if the person meticulously gathered all the aloe together, like chopped meat, and there was that minimum size of an olive's worth of tomate, then it does defile because by his actions, he showed that this is something that means a lot to him. Now the Rambam gives a list, and we had a similar list in the forbidden foods of Edel Behemus. These are the animals, which their hide is considered like their meat, because it's soft and it's not very good hide. Number one is Eir Chazir Shal Yishuv, the hide of a domesticated pig, and therefore, or the hide of a wild, uh, no, the hide of a domesticated pig, and therefore this will convey impurity. He says here in the note, on the other hand, in contrast, the hide of a wild boar is too tough to be eaten, but this domesticated pig hide is gentle enough to be eaten, so therefore it does not have the exclusion. The Eir Chateteres you have the hump of a camel. The camel has a hump. The hump of a camel, before it's used, is very tender and soft. 
As long as it's tender and soft, then it's still considered meat. The air hashlil, the skin, I'm sorry, the air base haboshes, the skin of the private parts of the animal is very soft. The air hashlil, and the skin of a fetus of the animal, the air shatachasalia, the skin under the fatty tail, all these bring about impurity from a carcass because they're not considered hide, they're considered more meat. However, what if he processed them? Or one form of processing would be to repeatedly walk on this skin. The processing or the extensive walking on the skin makes it not be meat and it's considered hide. Therefore, it does not convey impurity. Or if he did something which would nullify it from being meat and make it more into a usable object. That's another form where it retains ritual purity. Even though he didn't walk on it enough to really process it, he just did it a little bit, but it was an act which showed that this is something which is not meat, it's a utensil. for example. What if somebody took the ear of a donkey and he used it as a handle for his suitcase, for his basket? So now it's not an ear, it's a handle. That act enough is to remove it from the category of meat. And other similar acts. Kama, who could they We talk about walking on the high repeatedly. How much is repeatedly? Arba Mueller, four kilometers worth. Bezohi, Chateteres, Naka, what's considered a soft camel hump? How soft is soft? Because Manchaletona, as long as this camel did not take loads on it, because the hump usually takes loads on it, as long as it was not loaded for transport. Because the loading of stuff on it makes it hard and tough and loses the description of meat. He gives mana litim bilaytona. What if it matured enough where it's old enough to carry weights, but it didn't? A shatona kaidim, she gives mana, or it carried, but it wasn't old enough. And as a subject, we're really not sure. Now we get into the next case in ten. What if somebody skins the carcass of a domesticated animal or wild animal? Again, meat is a source of impurity. Skin, hide is not. So now he's skinning it. Whether this is an impure species or pure. Whether a small animal like a goat or a sheep, or a large animal like a cow or a bull. If he's trying to create a large mat. A carpet, where they would take and they would try and keep the skin whole. The whole animal skin would be whole, so it would make a large mat. Being that they cut off enough, large enough to grab it, which they twachim, it's three twachim, it's three twachim, about three and a half inches per tepah, so about seven inches. Now if somebody touches this skin, that person is pure because it's not meat, it's skin. But he didn't yet separate two hand breaths worth, still connected to the meat. So therefore, touching the skin would be like touching the meat. Because the problem here is it's still connected because he's in the process. What if he was doing something else? He was trying to create a flask for drinking, which means you have to take the whole bottom of the skin and keep it together. Then the skin, the hide is considered connected until he removes the entire chest area, because he begins from the feet area. But if he only skinned it from the leg area, it's considered connected, and therefore it's a source of impurity. And one who touches the hide, it's like he touches the flesh. When does it lose its ability to contaminate? When it's totally separate from the meat, then it's never a problem. One who skins the hide of crawling animals, we're going to learn the detailed laws of the crawling animals a little bit later in chapter 4. He skins a crawling animal. It's considered connected until it's totally skinned. Hide on the neck area. It's considered connected until it's totally skinned. Any skin that's connected to the source of impurity. I'm sorry. Any skin which becomes, which is considered a source of impurity. It also can become impure. If it was slaughtered. And this skin of the slaughtered animal touched another source of impurity. It becomes impure. Whereas while it's connected to the meat, it doesn't. What if there is hide, but it still has an olive's worth? Then even when somebody touches a strand of the hide, which extends outward from the meat, or the hair on the other side of the hide that is opposite to meat, he contracts impurity because there is meat on the other side. Because we say that the skin on the hair is there to guard the meat. If an animal attacked his carcass and left it over, but if the human knight left it, if it was very thin, then it's considered hide. Or if there's hide that has two half of Olives worth of meat. However, there are two different places on the hide. Oh, and the one. The skin, the animal skin, the hide, nullifies them. And they do not convey impurity. Not by touching them. And not by carrying them, which is a more severe form. Because anything that does not convey impurity through touching, does not convey impurity through carrying. But two half volume olives. Where he put a spear through them. He put a skewer through them. 
Carrying them would make him pure. Because there's a skewer combining the two, and now he's carrying an olive's worth. But if somebody touches it, Toyer, he's still pure because you still have two separate unrelated pieces. What about the fact that the person put them on the skewer and now they're related? So we learned earlier, and the Ramam quotes this here, when a person connects, it's not considered connected. It's what nature connects. If they are fine or thin, Flattened, with the book him is ever and connected, actually not look after whether it can be taken as one. But if this half of the olive's worth was in one place separate, the Zebra and the other one, because just because they're on one skewer doesn't mean anything. I feel like maybe call him even if he walked around with it. Like a flagpole all day, Tahir, it still retains ritual purity. Um, I made a bracha earlier, I'm just gonna have some water. You give me 13. So, so far, what we have is if it is flesh, it conveys impurity. If it's not flesh, as long as it's severed, it does not convey impurity. flesh of a carcass, which went bad, it decomposes. The heat should become spoiled. Smells. Even if you fed a dog, this spoiled meat, the dog would walk away. That's not a good sign. That means even the dog won't eat it. Tall hair is not considered meat, and therefore does not convey impurity, so we consider it pure. The people, therefore, netzel on available, we learned extensively the whole idea of netzel earlier, and the laws of the impurity of a corpse. Netzel is flesh that is decomposed and turned into a future liquid mass, provided a liquid mass that resulted from the corpse coagulates. That's netzel. So if this corpse became netzel, this animal carcass, sulfic, we're not sure in the time because I say it conveys impurity with the amount, with the right amount of volume. If not, or what about the flesh of a carcass that became dried out? Does that convey impurity? So the litmus test here is in Yochel. We learned something like this earlier. If you can soak it in warm water for 24 hours and it'll become softened and now the dog will eat it then it can convey impurity but even if 24 hours of soaking in warm water will not bring it back to life so to speak will not moisten it then it retains ritual purity it does not even become like impure foods it's not a food it's dried out what if you have meat of an animal carcass that is so smelly it's so bad to begin with and it's not fit for human consumption it's decomposed as it says in the verse that meat that has from an animal carcass that has died you should give it to a stranger who's not Jewish in your gates but here, it's so bad that it's decomposed, even the stranger wouldn't take it. Why should the stranger take bad meat? Only when it's fit to give it to a stranger, which means it has to really be edible. What about a placenta found in an animal carcass? Is placenta considered meat, and therefore does it convey impurity? The answer is no. It's like garbage. It does not bring about defilement like a carcass. Unless he said, oh, did I get myself a placenta? I'm going to have it for lunch. And then it can't take on the impurity of food. Because he pronounced this food. The stomach of the dried milk on the stomach and the, the milk of the carcass are completely pure. They're not considered a source of impurity. What if an animal discharges coagulated blood instead of a fetus? Even though in the laws of firstborn, we can argue and say that this animal now cannot have a firstborn because maybe this chunk of blood was a fetus. So the doubt itself is sufficient, but it's not sufficient to convey impurity. Touching it, or carrying it, there has to be some form or shape of a fetus. So that our laws of becoming a source of impurity are more severe than the exemption of a possible mother of a firstborn. Because it takes on the nullification of majority which comes forth with it. Therefore, he tailored his pure. Even though you could say that a stranger who does not eat kosher would be able to eat it together with his mother, it's not considered live, it's considered part of the offspring. Here you have an interesting law, the closing law of chapter 1. What if you have a carcass of an animal or part of a carcass that became mixed up with a kosher slaughtered animal? We said that carcass becomes a source of impurity, kosher slaughtered animal does not. Now we don't know what's what. If the majority is from the slaughtered kosher animal, but then the, then the animal carcass part becomes nullified within the regular part. Nothing would be contaminated through simply touching it. However, when you carry it, you're carrying everything. If he carried it all, then he should become impure because he's carrying for sure the impure part. Why do we say earlier that it can be nullified? Because it's impossible for a slaughtered animal ever to become an impure carcass. Slaughtered is slaughtered. But an impure carcass could become pure. There comes a point in time where the impure carcass would be considered pure. When is that? When it becomes so decomposed, it's not food anymore. Therefore, it can become nullified. But we say even now it does become nullified. End of chapter 1. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchah is the laws of Shar, Avos, Hatumah, the rest of the major sources 
of impurity, and we're going through the laws of animal carcass. Yesterday we built our foundation, and today he goes on in chapter 2, Halacha 1. Behema, a domestic animal, a or a non-domestic animal, kameya, of an unkosher species, such as a lion. I'm kidding about the lion, but any non-kosher animal. Shenishchata, which was ritually slaughtered. Now, in chapter 1, we learned that when a kosher species animal is ritually slaughtered, that removes it from any possible category of impurity, because ritually slaughtered food from kosher species is not impure. What if somebody kosher slaughtered a non-kosher species animal? It doesn't help. Slaughtering doesn't help for a non-kosher species. So, for example, somebody takes a pig, which is not kosher, and has the shulchet slaughter it, it still does not cause this pig to become a non-nevela, a non-entity of impurity of animal carcass, because kosher slaughter only works for kosher species. But here he gets into a different element of halacha. In general, in Jewish law, the fact of the matter is, scientifically, once an animal is slaughtered, the subconscious nerves still cause it to jump around, still cause it to move. It's dead. Its soul, so to speak, has departed, but it's still making involuntary movements, even though it's not living. According to halacha, that is considered slaughtered. Now, when it comes to non-kosher species animals, that involuntary movement phase is not considered dead. So the halacha is different when it comes to non-kosher species animals. As long as the animal is in its death throes, which means it's making these convulsive involuntary movements, it's not considered without life for the purpose of spreading defilement, because it's still moving. Ad until shayotis or shayatis esreisha, until the head is cut off. Once the head is cut off, the head of the animal is cut off, even though <coughs> it's still <coughs> making involuntary convulsive movements, but a headless animal is not alive and therefore it begins to convey ritual impurity. However, it does become also like impure food, because there is a rule that food, once it's exposed to liquid, and we haven't even touched upon these laws, can also become impure as food can. So it also takes on the category of impure food, even though it's not kosher. Because in order for food to become impure, it doesn't have to be kosher. Nechora, what if he just stabbed it in its throat, and it's making these convulsive movements. It doesn't even have the lighter form of being able to convey impurity as impure food, because it's still making convulsive movements. So here we have a whole system within halacha as to convulsive movements, what it is considered. In the case of a Jew, which chita is considered as if it's dead. In the case of a non-kosher species animal, it does not yet convey ritual impurity. Now, before I even go on, I want to introduce, and we actually touched upon this earlier in the laws of forbidden foods, there are seven Noahide laws, seven laws which God gave to Noah, the seven laws pertaining to all human beings, Jews have the seven laws replaced with 613 laws. One of the seven Noahide laws, in specific terms, is Eber Minachai, the prohibition to eat a limb cut off of a living animal, which means even though a non-Jew, the Gentile world does not have the mitzvah, does not have the commandment of ritual slaughter, of shkita, it still has the commandment of Eber Minachai. They may not consume a limb which was cut off of a living animal. That's the specific. If you want to know the general spirit behind that law, it's the law of cruelty to animals. We have to be humane in dealing with animals not to impose cruelty of any kind, except in the regular process of slaughter. So therefore, that includes Eber Minachai, you can't just cut off a limb and dip it in mustard and eat it, because it causes the animal horrific pain. That's the probable cause, or probable reason, but the fact is that Eber Minachai is a very important law, the prohibition of having a limb from a living animal, which pertains to all human beings. So now he says, What if a limb was severed from an animal that's still in its convulsive state? Although, for the purposes of a Jew and Shechita, it's considered dead, but for the purposes of a non-Jew, Asur, Libnei Neach, that is still forbidden for a Noachai, which means a non-Jew, Kepedesh Minachai, as if it would have been severed from a living animal, because the animal is still convulsive. And therefore, logically we conclude that any flesh severed from this animal that's still convulsing, Kepedesh Minachai, is as if the flesh was severed from a living animal. So in any event, it does not convey ritual impurity. It's also forbidden. Similarly speaking, a kosher species animal that was ritually slaughtered by a shochet, but something went wrong in the process, so the animal is pronounced not kosher. And that animal is still in its death throes. 
We learned much earlier that there are two signs which must be severed in order to make an animal kosher. The windpipe and the esophagus. So what if he only severed one of them? Which means that the animal is not kosher slaughtered. Being that the kosher slaughter, the ritual slaughter, didn't work in the above two cases. Because the slaughter became invalid, or because he only slaughtered, he only severed one of these two signs, then there is no impurity. There is no impurity until it will die, because it's not considered ritually slaughtered. So it goes back to the basic law of life and death. And an animal carcass can only convey impurity once it's dead. Again, this is the focus of these laws. You know, whenever the Rambam or Halacha deals with the law, there are so many crisscrossing situations that we have to talk about. Here we have one narrow focus Does it convey impurity? What if somebody went and divided an animal into two parts? Or one removes its thigh and its inner cavity which is the meat surrounding the hip bone, whether a non-kosher species animal or kosher species, anyone, I'm sorry, I skipped. Where am I here? This is an available, it's a carcass, because it's so severed. And it conveys impurity, by carrying it, and by touching it. Even though theoretically, you can say, it is still alive, that's not alive. So also, if it was ripped apart from its back, or its backbone was broken, and the majority of the meat around it severed, it's called the it's considered as if it is a carcass conveying impurity. Because this is not considered life. Based who, here comes an interesting law. The law in general is that when an animal is kosher slaughtered, and after the animal is slaughtered, they find a fetus or an offspring within the animal, then technically, biblically, that fetus has already been slaughtered through its mother's slaughter. Even though it's alive. Rabbinically, we're told we can't eat it until we make sure it's dead. But biblically, it has been slaughtered because it was part of its mother. So now comes some offshoots of that law. Behema, an animal. Shemes uboro, whose fetus died within its womb. So you have a dead fetus being carried by this animal. The shepherd extends his hand into the womb and touches it. Now the question is, does this fetus, this animal fetus, which is dead, convey impurity to the shepherd? And has this shepherd now become impure? That's the focus here. Whether this animal whose fetus died within it is of an impure species or it's of a pure species. Interesting rule. The rule is that the shepherd is not impure. The shepherd is pure. Why? Because the fetus never saw the air of this world yet. It has not entered the world. What's going on in the womb is nobody's business. So it's not considered a dead fetus until it comes out. So the fact that the shepherd inserted his hand into the womb and touched the stillborn fetus, it does not convey impurity. Gimel. Boss our flesh. Which is severed from an animal, domestic or wild. Kishahin and while they're still living, somebody went and severed a piece of flesh from a domestic or wild living animal. Whether kosher or non-kosher species. Toher, that piece of flesh does not impart impurity. It's an entire limb of a living animal, as described above. An entire limb does convey impurity, as if it was a dead carcass. Whether it is a limb of a living animal, coming from the animal itself, coming off the fetus within its womb, a limb is a limb. Now, although earlier we said that there is a volume minimum of the volume of an olive, that's standard, if it's an entire limb of a fetus, which is tiny, it could even be less than an olive because it has the entirety of a limb. Even if it was like a piece of barley, even if it was like a barley, a barley corn, a pockets are smaller, but it's an entire limb. You put it under a microscope, and you see it's an entire limb of an animal, it can already convey impurity. Who provided that? That this limb be as it was through its natural creation, which means Basar has to have flesh, beginning it has to have sinews or veins, about some and bones. And it has to have enough flesh so that if it was living, it could heal itself, it could regenerate itself. And we learned all of these laws earlier. If this animal was living, if it would not have been able to regenerate itself, or bone was lacking, it is pure. And we learned many of the parallel laws in the laws of Ma'cholos Asuris of Forbidden Foods, chapter 5, Halacha 2, and that whole section, we also learned parallels in Tumas Mes, chapter 2, Halacha 3. And continuing along with laws for which we already learned parallels, Hakulia, 
the kidney, the haloshin and the tongue, the hasopha and the lip of the animal, or any similar limbs, a kidney is a limb, a tongue is a limb, a lip is a limb. Nevertheless, although they are limbs, and they do not regenerate, but because there is no bone matter, kidneys, tongues, and lips don't have bone. Then they are considered for this purpose as meat, and if they are separated from a living animal, they do not impart impurity, because they're not a limb. Hey five, what if there is a living animal? Domestic or wild, where the piece of flesh is just hanging loose, it's an unhealthy piece of flesh, the dead piece of flesh is just hanging. There's no way that this could regain vitality and reconnect with the rest of the body, there's a problem. So there's a hanging piece of flesh. Now the question is, what if this hanging piece of flesh is severed? They do not impart impurity. Like a carcass, as long as the animal from which it comes is living. But if they are severed, then they become like any other food matter where they could become. Moist and therefore can take on impurity. If they are ready through moisture, they can accept impurity. And all of these laws will be learned in the right context. We haven't yet touched the essence of these laws. What if the animal was slaughtered? So now the animal is dead. The slaughter removes the possibility of impurity of carcass from the animal. It does the same from the piece of meat that was hanging. Because ritual slaughter does not make things as if they are dead for the purposes of impurity. Because we know that ritual slaughter retains purity. That's why... Meat that's ritually slaughtered does not convey impurity. However, if the animal died on its own, not ritually slaughtered, then in order for the meat that was hanging to be determined as impure due to an external impurity, it needs to be readied with liquid that came upon it. But if it was a complete limb, it does convey impurity because of the law we mentioned earlier of a limb severed off a living animal. But it does not convey impurity because of a limb from a carcass because it's not a carcass. What is the difference between the contamination that is derived from a limb from a living animal and the contamination that can be derived from a limb of an animal carcass? The meat that is separated from a living limb, toher, is pure. But the meat severed from a limb of a carcass, metame, conveys impurity because I, as long as there is an olive's words, by touching or carrying, they both have the same measure, which is the measure of the minimum limb and so on. So here we see that the Eber Menachai, the limb of the living animal, only can convey impurity because it's a limb. But meat alone doesn't. And the limb of a dead animal conveys impurity both by limb as well as by meat. Now comes a situation where we know that ritual slaughter causes the animal to become an animal that will not convey impurity. Trefa, what if an animal? That's a trefa. What is the definition of trefa? An animal that is known not to be able to live naturally for the next 12 months. It will die because of a condition, a disease, or what have you. In the next 12 months, that's a fact. So because an animal can't live for 12 months, it's already considered not kosher right now, and should not be slaughtered, and should not be used. What if somebody went and slaughtered that animal? They called the best shokin in the world, and he slaughtered it. Now, of course, it's forbidden to eat, because you're not going to eat an animal that's going to die within 12 months. But our focus here is, <coughs> does this animal convey impurity? Because on the one hand, you could say it was slaughtered, so it should not convey impurity. On the other hand, you could say it's not kosher and it's dead. It should convey impurity. It does not convey impurity. So also, if somebody slaughters an animal, and I explained this in my introduction at the very beginning of the chapter, he found the fetus within it, and this particular scenario is that the fetus died. Theoretically, technically, the fact that its mother was slaughtered causes this dead fetus to be considered technically already slaughtered. Because it's not considered an independent entity. What if they find a fetus living, but it's an eight-month fetus, the normal gestation period, and an animal is nine months. This animal was eight months. We know in Allah it says that an animal of eight, uh, animal or human at the eighth month can't live. Again, that was before there was medical intervention and incubators and so on. Nitra, so the eight-month animal is considered trait. Even though... It was slaughtered after it was found to be nitrov. The fact that it was slaughtered does not purify it. Because its species, meaning an eighth-month-old animal, does not have shkita. Therefore, there's another law that the offspring of an animal must live for seven days if there is a doubt as to whether it can live. If it was slaughtered within the seven days, that slaughtering does not cleanse it from the status of carcass. Because it's like a non-viable offspring, and this is a special law. 
which we dealt with earlier, the law of the seven-day viability. If somebody slaughters an animal, he finds an offspring of nine months living, but it did not yet walk on the ground, it didn't place its feet on the ground, even though, as we explained earlier, not touched upon this in the introduction, technically it does not require to be slaughtered, because its mother was slaughtered, because the slaughtering of its mother purifies it, if its mother was defiled, this does not become defiled in this Nava, even if the mother becomes a carcass, it retains purity, even though, theoretically, it could be eaten because of its mother's slaughter, but its mother's status is not conveyed to it, if it has to do with impurity or carcass or what have you. Why? Because this animal is alive. The rule is that a living animal does not become defiled. Not as food, because living animals are not food. Not as a carcass, because a living animal is not a carcass. Even though for the purposes of shita, theoretically, it's considered like a limb of its mother, but not for the purposes of impurity. This is the amazing chidush, contribution of this halacha. And if it died before it stepped down on the ground, it maintains its ritual purity, because it was still a limb of its mother. Because the ritual slaughter of its mother purified it. An animal that could not live for 12 months, which was slaughtered ritually, even though my Torah law is pure, but if holy food touched it, Nitma became impure with your rabbinically. That's an additional application that was instituted for holy food. Test 9. An animal that is having difficulty birthing its offspring. An animal is in labor and it's just not giving birth. The offspring extended its foreleg. And uh, whoever was doing the birthing there swiftly cut off that limb. I guess they were trying to get it out piece by piece. And then the mother was slaughtered. The fetus is still within. The limb that was cut off is considered carcass. But the rest of the offspring is pure, because it was still in the womb. If he slaughtered the mother, and then and only then did he sever the limb. The limb is like a non-viable animal that was slaughtered. And the rest of the flesh of this offspring. is like touching an animal that could not live for 12 months that was slaughtered. Which we learned earlier. Conveys impurity to holy food, to sacrifice food, but not to holy food. What if this offspring extended its foreleg between the moment that the shoch had slaughtered and severed one of the two signs, the windpipe and the esophagus, and not the other? One sign combines to the other. And now this limb is no longer considered a carcass. Now comes an interesting law. We know that shechita, ritual slaughter, is a mitzvah given only to Jews. Non-Jews do not have this mitzvah. Furthermore, a non-Jew cannot be a shochet. A non-Jew cannot be a ritual slaughter for a Jew. He doesn't have the whole mitzvah. He doesn't have the commandment. What if a idol worshiper slaughtered an animal? What happens to this animal now? Is it considered a kosher, enough slaughtering, so that the animal will not defy, will not give off impurity? The answer is nevela. It's considered a carcass. It's considered an animal which died. On the time of the Masai, conveys impurity just by carrying it, so that this ritual slaughter does not help save it from a carcass status. Because a non-Jew doesn't have the whole mitzvah does not have the entire commandment of ritual slaughter. Even if there was a Jew closely supervising this idolatrous shochet v'shochat, and we know that he used for shechita b'sakinyaf, he used a wonderful knife. The knife was kosher. A, a knife of a shochet, we learned, has to really be smooth and perfect, and it has many, many mandatory laws. So the knife was good. Shechita Koroi was slaughtered properly. Because this is an idolater, it doesn't work. This applies to someone who is an idol worshiper. The Echad Hakusi, it also applies to a Kusi. And a Kusi, he translates here as a Samaritan. And sharing this famous teaching from the note here, the term Samaritan, Kusi, or Kufian, in classical Hebrew, denotes the people whom the invading king of Assyria settled in the northern part of Israel. His philosophy, the invading king's philosophy, Sancherev, was a philosophy of population exchange. So he would invade a territory and remove its population and put in another population. Just so people should know that they are guests. They shouldn't feel too much at home. So he placed, in part in the northern part of Eretz Yisrael, which was Samaria, in place of the exiled ten tribes. These people, because they were in Samaria, converted to Judaism, but were very selective in their observance. They decided what they want to observe and what they don't want to observe. And therefore, as time went on, it was determined that they should not be accepted and they were never accepted as an integral part of our people. Indeed, the early Talmudic sages questioned whether their conversion was halakhically effective or not, because they continued to worship idols. By the, time of the late, by the time of the later sages, it had been discovered that they were idolaters and were deemed to be outright Gentiles. So therefore, if this shochet was a kusi, 
a regular Gentile, a Kusi, or Ger Toshev, was a stranger settler, which means somebody who was a non-Jew, who accepted the sovereignty of the Jewish people in Israel, accepted the seven Noah laws, but doesn't have to keep kosher. This person also can't be a Shochet, because he simply was never given the commandment. These are good people, but they were never given the commandment. Shechitos on any of the above list, which perpetrates a ritual slaughter, which becomes a shokhet. Everything is slaughtered is considered a dead carcass. Now says the Rambam, I am fairly certain that this law which we just learned to the Rambam, Shabbat Zemi did suffer, this is probably rabbinic. What's the proof that this is a rabbinic rule and not a biblical rule? Just the fact that idolatry is impure. Just the fact that anything offered to idolatry is impure is also a rabbinic decree. As we are yet to explain. Why were the Kusim distanced from the Jewish people? Because it was ascertained that they were idolaters. And their ritual slaughter was prohibited to use. So this must be a rabbinic-based law. If you say by biblical laws forbidden like that may be, but not everything forbidden to eat conveys ritual impurity. Because the proof is we learned earlier that an animal that could not live for twelve months if it was slaughtered is still forbidden to eat, but it does not convey ritual impurity. We just learned this. The actual course, it's impossible to cause the cutting off of the soul to be imposed. Altumazu for this form of impurity. Obvious migdash, for example, if somebody with this form of impurity would enter the holy temple, Achilles Kadoshov or eat holy foods, Ella Berura. Unless it was clearly proven that there was a real impurity. Eleven out of twelve. When a person is exposed to the thigh bone of a dead animal, he touches it, he carries it, oh, here he is pure. Why? Because in addition to bone, we have to have meat. Because any part of the carcass that does not convey impurity with touching does not convey impurity through carrying. And there's no meat here. This particular bone is a bare bone and does not have any meat on it. Even though the bone contains marrow. And we learned earlier that marrow is like meat. So what about the marrow? The marrow is shut in into this bone, because as we learned much earlier, this bone has no opening. You can't get into this bone unless you drill into it. Nikva kosho, however, if it was punctured. Then, because the marrow has access to come out, anyone who touches it or carries it is ritually impure. When you can actually hear the marrow rattling. Because once the marrow rattles, even if this was a living bone, it could never regenerate, because the marrow is dried out. But if it was in its original state, if it has enough, where it can actually cause regeneration because of the marrow. Marrow, as we know today, bone marrow is a very, very potent part of the human being, and it can actually cause regeneration. Then it is considered like meat, and it could bring about contamination like any other limb. We already explained. The reason this is a special law is because the thigh bone is closed on all sides. It has no opening. Final halacha of chapter 2. Kulis. What if somebody had intention? He has thoughts that he's going to perforate the thigh bone, but he didn't do it yet. But he intended to. The one who touches it may be impure. Why? Because we're really uncertain. Because he intended to puncture it, does he actually have to puncture it? Or the actual intention causes it to be as if it was punctured? End of chapter 2.